Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 34. Psalm 34 will be the psalm we are in this morning as we uh, pick back up in the Psalms from just one day, <laughs> one day missing them. Psalm 34, we'll, we'll look at the whole psalm this morning and we'll read through the whole psalm to begin. This is a psalm we can see here that is also uh, written by David. He writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we're told in the superscript, this, is, um, this was a psalm that he wrote when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. We pick up in verse 1. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, we again see here 
an example of David having tasted your goodness, having known your saving works, and inviting all others, all the righteous, to know these same blessings, to know you as a good and faithful God, to taste and see that you are good. And he instructs us based on his own life, based on the works that you had done for him. He instructs us in how we are to live if we trust in the Lord. If we are united to his king. And so I pray for our time this morning, Lord, that as we consider the words of this psalm, that we would heed David's instruction, that we would know you as the one who has saved us, that we we would know you as the good God. And out of knowing you would flow from our hearts a life of good works that bring glory and honor to your name. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to a psalm that is the first psalm in another grouping of psalms that concludes book one of the Psalter. So, of course, as we've seen before, the book of Psalms consists of five different books. And within these five books, you have different little subgroupings of psalms that have been brought together. And it's the case that this morning, as we're continuing in book one of the Psalms that consists of Psalms 1 to 41, we come to the final grouping of book one of the Psalms. Psalm 34 is the first in this last grouping. It is also a Psalm that, of course, as you can see here, has a much more elaborate superscript that tells us the situation that gave rise to David writing this psalm. The superscript, which is placed before verse 1, at the very beginning of the psalm, says that Psalm 34 is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And what this is referring to is the account that we read earlier from 1 Samuel 21 of David fleeing from Saul, who was, of course, trying to kill him. And he came to the city of Gath, which was a Philistine city. And when he arrived there to find refuge from others like Saul, who were trying to kill him, the servants of the Philistine king fought, they recognized him. Isn't this David? Isn't this the mighty warrior of the Israelites? Isn't this the one that they sing songs about? Saul has struck down his thousands. David has struck down his ten thousands. Isn't this the man? Right? They they think they've recognized one of the greatest warriors, if not, of course, the greatest warrior among the Israelite 
army who is their greatest enemy. And of course, the problem is that if they find out that a great Israelite warrior is among them, again, one of their fiercest enemies, they wouldn't think twice about capturing him and killing him and hanging his dead body in the temple of their gods, as they would later do with Saul. And so when David hears of the rumblings, of the rumors, and the whispering, and speculations about who he was, who this foreigner, this traveler in the city of Gath was, he became afraid for his life. And so we read in that chapter that he pretended to be a madman to be insane. He pretended to be out of his mind. He drooled on himself. He was making strange markings on doors and walls and gates. He was just acting crazy. And when the king saw him acting this way, he couldn't believe that this madman was the mighty warrior David. And so he sends him away and David escapes with his life. This is the setting, the background to David writing this psalm and what, again, the superscript of the psalm is referring to. But there's also an interesting change that is made in the superscript, a, a, a change in detail, if you will, uh, from what actually uh, are the details of 1 Samuel 21. In the superscript of the psalm, we are told that the name of the king before whom David pretended to be insane was Abimelech. And yet in 1 Samuel 21, the name of the Philistine king is Achish. And so this has naturally raised a question. Why the change? Why in one place is his name Abimelech and in another it is Achish? And some have suggested that one reason could be that Abimelech can be a kind of inherited royal name with Philistine kings, as we see, for example, in Genesis 20 and 26, that both Abraham and Isaac are having conflicts with the Philistine king of Gerar, whose name was Abimelech. And so Abimelech, which means my father is king, would be a kind of royal name that is inherited, and Achish would be something like his, his birth name. But others have suggested, and I think this is probably more likely, that David intentionally calls Achish Abimelech here to make a point of contact in his life and between his life and the conflicts he had and the deliverance he had from the Philistine king and the lives of Abraham and Isaac. He's drawing a connection between all three of them. 
Both Abraham and Isaac, for example, were strangers or sojourners in a Philistine city, Gerar. Both Abraham and Isaac were afraid of dying in that city because the men there did not fear God. And both Abraham and Isaac deceived the king, Abimelech, in order to escape what they thought would be certain death. And they were subsequently delivered from their conflicts. And David, likewise, was sojourning in the Philistine city of Gath. He was afraid for his life because the men did not fear God. They did not fear at all killing a man like David. And he deceived the king by pretending to be insane in order to escape death. And so David likely sees himself and sees his life as following in the pattern of the fathers who were also in covenant with God. In the same way that he understands his own life to be the pattern of his messianic offspring who was to come and who would sit eventually on his throne. And so this psalm, this psalm is not just a psalm about an isolated, insignificant event in David's life. It is about a pattern. It is about the kind of thing God does for those He's in covenant with, which is an important point to keep in mind. Especially as we come to the end of the psalm and consider what is said there. Now, the psalm is an acrostic poem, which we've seen before, and which means that every line begins with a letter that follows the order of the Hebrew alphabet. This also, of course, makes it a little difficult to work through verse by verse because it's not following a logical flow of thought. It's following an ordered flow based on the structure of a poem. And so as we work through it, what we're going to do is just look at a few key themes that are running throughout the psalm, and there's three in particular that I want us to consider together. And the first theme is the theme of continuous joy in the Lord. The theme of continuous joy in the Lord. Now, it is important to remember where David is at this point in his life in order to understand the significance of this particular theme. David's life, in many ways, is a kind of tragedy at this point. He is not ruling from the throne. He does not have nations and peoples coming to serve Him. He is not enjoying the fruits of victory and blessing. No, at this point in his life, it seems as if everything is imploding. There's nothing good going on. 
Because of the Lord's favor upon him, of course, David had enjoyed somewhat briefly a kind of meteoric rise in Israel. He had killed the Philistine champion, Goliath. He was brought into the king's court, King Saul, in order to minister to him. Of course, Saul had been afflicted by a tormenting spirit, and it's hard to know exactly what was involved in that torment, but when David played the lyre for him, it would soothe him, it would refresh him, it would bless him. And so David regularly served and cared for Saul by ministering to him with his musical talents. He also, of course, fought for Saul. He led Saul's armies. He won many battles for Saul. David, in fact, loved Saul. Saul was his king. Saul was a great man. I mean, he was chosen by the people of Israel because he's, he was tall, he was handsome, I mean, he, he was strong. People liked him. David liked him. David loved him and loved to serve him. And Saul's son, Jonathan, was of course his dearest and most beloved friend. Saul was even family to David. He was his father-in-law by marriage to Michal. Saul was not just some tyrant of a man that David despised. No, David loved him. He was his king. And that was not just like a political position in his mind. Like he's, he's my king to David. And the Lord's anointed. And David loved him even to the point of Saul's death. But when Saul grew jealous over David, he snapped. And he turned against David in a moment. And suddenly, this great king whom David loved, this father-in-law wanted him dead. And there's a period of time that goes by in David's life where, where he's not completely certain that Saul wants him dead. He needs confirmation. Real, good, solid, true confirmation. And you would think, of course, that if someone threw a spear at you and tried to nail you to the wall, That'd be confirmation enough. But again, David loves him. He can't believe what's happening. I mean, you, you could understand this if there was someone you knew and loved for so long and they suddenly turned against you. Everything in you wants to deny it. This can't be real. And there's a sense in which David is, is at that point. He... He knows what's true, but he still needs some further confirmation. His friend Jonathan as well, of course, who Saul's son, he can't believe it as well. And Jonathan was holding out 
that there was a slight possibility for hope that his father wouldn't kill David. But of course, as the story unfolds, eventually even Jonathan learns the truth that his father is settled on killing David. And there's this really just heartbreaking and gut-wrenching moment where Jonathan has to essentially confirm the worst news. What David already mostly knew. That the king was hunting him down. That the king was hunting his family down and wanted him dead. That king David loves once David dead. And it's not long after David is freshly on the run that he ends up in a Philistine city and has to fake insanity in order to escape. And even once he does escape that near-death occasion among the Philistines, it's not as if now all things get better. He escapes from there, and now he's hiding out in a cave. He's still on the run. He's still fleeing from the man he loves. The point is that everything, truly everything in David's life is imploding. There is no season of rest for him. He has been delivered from one trouble and he ends up in a brand new one. And yet, it's in the midst of this tragedy. It is in the midst of suffering and sorrow and the feelings of betrayal and danger. It is in the midst of all of this that David pins these words. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. In the midst of His life, Almost coming to an end. In the midst of hiding out in a cave, he is writing, praising, singing, magnify the Lord with me. Joy in the Lord does not cease. Nor is it determined by the circumstances or the afflictions and the sufferings that he's in. There is real sorrow in his soul. There is grief. There is fear. It is not as if all of these things have disappeared for him. But a man, of course, can experience multiple things at once. And what we find for David is that in the midst of his sorrows and sufferings, he has joy. 
in the Lord. And this here as well is not just a private, unseen kind of joy that if anyone else was to look at him and observe his life, they'd be unable to see. Right? It's not as if he's, he's just walking around and he's moaning and complaining and he's bitter about everything. And then you ask him, well, do you believe in the Lord? Yes, I believe in the Lord. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. He has manifest, obvious joy in the Lord in the midst of these afflictions. It is public and it involves others. Again, he says, magnify the Lord with me. He's calling upon others. Let us exalt the Lord together. He says in verse 8, calling again upon others to join with them, saying, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Or in verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. David's joy in the Lord is such that it overflows from his heart even when there is sorrow. Is that you? Can we as Christians say that about ourselves? That in the midst of sorrow, it is evident to others by my life that I love the Lord and I'm praising Him even through it all. The Apostle Paul says that we are to rejoice in sufferings. And he says that we're able to. We can do that. It's not an impossibility. This is not a call that can't actually be fulfilled in our lives. We are able to, he says, because of the hope and the love of God that has been poured out into our lives hearts. At some point in life, at some point, all men will suffer in some way or another. There will be sickness. There will be deaths. There will be conflicts, tragedies, wars, famines, disputes within a home, disputes outside a home. There are, of course, forms of suffering that are unique to the Christian because they are directly related to the Gospel of Christ. But there are many, many more forms that are just the common lot of all men. It is the reality of living in a fallen world that has a cursed ground that bears thorns and thistles. All men at some point will suffer. But the Christian, the Christian should endure afflictions very, very differently. Anyone, friends, anyone can endure with hopelessness, Anyone can endure with despair, bitterness, 
anger. Anyone can be like Job's wife and say, curse God and die. And that's what a lot of people do. Now they say, I'm enduring. And yet, it is these words that characterize their life. Curse God. But the Christian, because of our hope, because of the love of God, because we have the Spirit of God, because we've been given the grace of God, is called to a greater endurance. The Thessalonian believers were commended by Paul because when they suffered at the hands of their own countrymen, right, they're, they're the people they knew, their neighbors, whom they've grown up with, they do business with, they've known and had friendly friendships with forever. When they suffered at the hands of their own countrymen, like the Jewish believers suffered in Jerusalem at the hands of their countrymen, they were commended by Paul because in the midst of it, he says, they had the joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. And we must be marked by the same. If we view our lives rightly, if we view them biblically and according to the promises of God, then we will recognize that even the worst things that happen to us are for our good. For our sanctification. The worst crosses that we could imagine bearing if we believe the promises of God, His Word tells us they're for us. They're a chisel in the hand of God shaping us into image bearers of Christ. Making us holy. That should fundamentally reorient our thinking when it comes to afflictions. Because we know that we serve a sovereign God who is working for our good. And if we believe that, we will be able to say with David, in the midst of those deep sorrows, magnify the Lord with me. And we will have a continuous joy in Him. So this is, this is one key theme that is in the psalm. But a second theme is the theme of invitation and imitation. Invitation and imitation. Throughout the psalm, David calls on others, invites the saints to join with him in praise to God and to imitate Him in His actions because they all share in the same kinds of promises. So for example, we've already seen His call to praise in verses 1 to 3, verse 8 and 9. In verses 4 to 7, He recounts here His 
his experience of calling upon the Lord in prayer and the Lord answering him. I sought the Lord, he says, and he answered me. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And later in the psalm, he presents his own experience here as the pattern for those who, like him, fear the Lord. He says in verses 17 to 18, speaking here in the plural about all those who are righteous and godly. He says, when the righteous ones, when those, the, 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 the many righteous, cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Just like He did with David. And just like David prayed concerning himself. And the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Right? So, so David here is calling the saints to imitate Him because the Lord will similarly deliver them out of all their troubles. And this imitation involves conducting our lives towards even our enemies in much the same way that David conducted his life towards his enemies. His greatest enemy, of course, at this point, is Saul. And though Saul persecuted him, David continued to love him. He continued to honor him. He continued, continued to do good to Saul and to honor him as the Lord's anointed. And this is the lesson that he teaches others, the other godly, the other righteous, to follow in verses 11 to 15. This is, this is his instruction based upon his experience, based upon God's promises, this is his instruction to the saints about how they are to live. And it's worth noting that this is the very same passage the Apostle Peter quotes when he is similarly instructing Christians on how they are always to do good in response to evil. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in a context where Peter has been charging Christians to conduct themselves among the Gentiles in an honorable manner, and where he unpacks what this looks like within the political realm, what it looks like within relationships like that between a master and servants, and that between husbands and wives, he then addresses all Christians broadly. And he says this, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Notice, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes from Psalm 34, 11 to 15. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And after quoting this psalm, he asked the question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you? And the implied answer is no one. No one will harm you if you do good even to evildoers. It is generally going to be the case that if you do good to others, and especially if you repay their evil with good and with blessing, it will go well with you. And you will suffer no harm. And I think we know this, at least in principle. If you find yourself in an argument and one person gets angry and raises their voice and then the other repays that with anger and yelling, it just continues on and gets worse and worse and worse and spirals out of control. Sin begets more sin and conflicts get greater and greater. Entire countries are often thrust into bloody wars because of this very thing. Many of our own cultural conflicts are the fruit of resentment and repaying evil with evil. The whole philosophical framework of ideologies like Marxism rests on the foundation of returning evil for evil. But what begets peace and unity is returning good and blessing and love for evil. It is bearing the transgressions of others even when you may have a just cause against them. There is no one else who of course has had a greater cause and a more justified case against transgressors and personal offenses than Christ Himself. No one else has been sinned against more than Him. There is no one else whose afflictions have been greater or deeper than those of Christ. And yet, for the sake of bringing sin to an end, He bears the transgressions and repays the evil with blessing. So that when sin fires its arrows in his body, 
and lands in him, it stops. It's not then returned with ten other arrows. And it goes back and forth. It stops at the cross. And as Christians, we are called to imitate this very thing. We are called, as the Apostle Paul says, to put on humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And notice, if one has a complaint against another, a real justified offense, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Is that not what we are also taught by the Lord Jesus Himself to pray? Forgive us our transgressions as we forgive the transgressions of others, of those who've trespassed against us. We are called to turn away from all evil and do good. And usually, when we do that, it will bring good results. Peace and unity. Even respect and love from enemies. That's the general principle. But of course, having said this, we must also recognize that repaying evil with good is not a guarantee that no harm will come upon us. Even David, who wrote the words of this very psalm, was pursued like a worm for doing good. But this does not change what we are called to do. Our obedience is not ever to be dictated by the sins of others. And Peter himself recognized this reality of suffering for doing good and said, but even if you should suffer, even if harm does come your way, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. The Christian ethic, friends, is not a losing ethic. If we win our enemies by our conduct and the good done to them by the grace of God, we succeed. And we are blessed. And if we're persecuted and reviled and suffer for doing good, we're still blessed. And we still succeed. And conquered by the blood of the word of our testament and by not loving our lives even unto death. As John says in Revelation.
So we do good. We repay evil with good. And we imitate David in this way. We imitate Christ in this way. But the last theme I want to draw your attention to briefly in this psalm is the theme of the suffering righteous lamb. The theme of the suffering righteous lamb. At the end of the psalm, verses 19 to 21, David concludes with some interesting statements. He refers to himself here as the righteous one. In the singular, the word here for the righteous in verse 19 and 21 is in the singular, which can in the Psalms sometimes be used as a collective to refer to all those who are righteous before God. But throughout this Psalm, I would argue that the singular and plural use of words is actually very intentional to distinguish David from others. He even uses the plural back in verse 15 to specifically refer to all the saints as a larger category. All the righteous servants of the Lord. But here, here he's using the singular and he's speaking of himself as a singular individual. He is the righteous one. And notice what he says of himself. Many are the afflictions of the righteous one, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And then, this is important, he adds, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is an allusion to the Passover lamb that was slain at the Exodus and whose blood was to be placed over the doorposts of God's people, marking them out as His own, and whose blood saved the house of the people of God from knowing His judgments that was coming upon the firstborn throughout Egypt. The Lamb would suffer. The Lamb would be killed. But, in the ritual... None of its bones were ever to be broken. And here, David is describing himself as a kind of Passover lamb. He, of course, doesn't die, at least prematurely, but he suffers. And the Lord keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. And it's eventually through his suffering that the Lord then exalts him and places him on the throne of Zion, makes a covenant with him, and through him establishes the kingdom of Israel. Moreover, we see that it's even the case that a person's judicial standing before God is based in some way on their relationship to this righteous one. This Passover lamb, verse 21, says there, 
Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous one will be condemned. And so David is a righteous sufferer. He will have many afflictions. He is like a Passover lamb establishing a kingdom through his suffering. The Lord delivers him from all his afflictions and those who hate him will be condemned. And of course, we come to the New Testament, we find that David's offspring according to the flesh, Jesus Christ, who is the true King, is also the true fulfillment of this very thing. Not only is he identified in the beginning of John's Gospel as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But you'll remember as well that when He was crucified, there came a moment when the Roman soldiers came to break His legs so that He would die quicker. So that He would suffocate and they could remove Him from the cross and then He could be buried in accordance with the Jewish customs. But when the soldiers came to break His legs, they found that Jesus had already died. And so they didn't break His bones. And John recognized this. And he tells us in John 19.36 that these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from this psalm. Psalm 34, verse 20. Not one of His bones will be broken. David was but a type of the greater righteous suffering Lamb of God. The true Lamb. The true Christ. The true King of Zion. It is He who had many afflictions. It is He who had many sorrows. And it is He who was delivered from them all. And that deliverance, of course, even included deliverance from death. He was crucified and His blood was slain so that the judgment of God might pass over all who by faith have been covered in His blood. And after three days, He rose again, conquering even the power of death. And in the same way that David concludes his psalm with a promise at the end, none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned, so also does Christ extend this very same promise to all who are in covenant with Him. If you trust in Him, and if you turn from your sins and you turn from the company of the wicked. If like Jonathan with David, you love the Lord's anointed and you enter into a covenant with Him and you are His and He is yours and the Lord is your greatest friend. If you enter into a covenant with Him that has been sealed by His own blood, if you believe in Him and serve Him as a good servant to a good King, 
He promises to redeem you. And there's not a single promise that God has ever made that has ever failed. Nor will it ever fail. He promises that you will not be condemned because you love the righteous one. He promises you a kingdom. He promises you eternal life in that kingdom. He promises you a glorious inheritance. He invites you, as He did some 3,000 years ago, He does even today to taste and see. And you will see that the Lord is good. Let's go to Him now and close with prayer. Father, You have shown Your self-faithful to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob to Israel's anointed King David and ultimately to Christ and His people the church and I pray Lord that we would not only come to Christ to be forgiven, that the verdict of no condemnation would be passed in our favor. I pray that as we come to Him as well, we would imitate His life, imitate the life of David, and reflect the truths and the realities of the Gospel in our own lives. So that as people see us, in the church, as they see us, in our families, as they see us when we are out at work or wherever we may be, they may know the beauties of the gospel and themselves trust in the Lord and be saved. We ask that you would do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.